This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be looking this morning at verse 6. I'm going to be reading, however, in verse 1, a passage we looked at last week, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. And this morning, as we turn our attention to this passage, especially we pray for your grace. We pray for light. In your light, we would see light. We pray for uh, wisdom, Father, to understand your word. And pray that your spirit would... Uh, Teach us and guide us, guide our thoughts. Father, we pray that you would feed us and equip us by your word for living the Christian life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's much to life and certainly much to the Christian life that is a matter of proper balance. This is true certainly in theological matters. In fact, many of the false teachings, errors, heresies that have plagued the church throughout her history have been a result of getting various strains of biblical teaching out of equilibrium, out of the proper proportion that we find them in Scripture. For example, a very basic one would have to do with the nature of Christ, Christ's deity, Christ's humanity. Uh, throughout the history of the church, errors regarding the person of Christ have tended to uh, be a result of clinging to his deity at the expense of his true humanity or clinging to his true humanity at the expense of his deity. The first you tended to see early on, even in the uh, days of the New Testament, with Gnostic teaching, proto-Gnosticism, early Gnosticism that later developed uh, in the second century that said, well, Jesus was was deity, he only appeared to be human. Of course, today, the error tends to go in the other direction. Jesus was, of course, a man, but uh, certainly not God incarnate. And so we must hold to the biblical balance, the, the truth of both teaching, his full humanity, his full deity. Or the Trinity could be another example. God is one God. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God, and yet he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Uh, Another uh, illustration could have to do with both the sovereignty of God 
and the moral responsibility and accountability of people. On the one hand, God rules over everything that happens, including everything that we do. He is sovereign over it all, and yet we are not robots. We are not marionettes on a string. We make real choices according to our fallen nature or redeemed nature, and we are accountable before God for the decisions and choices that we make. Which is it? Is God sovereign or are we accountable and responsible? Well, it's both. Is God one God or three persons? He's both. Is Jesus God and man or man? He's both. And so we have to hold the two in balance. Theologically, that's true. Practically, that's also true in the Christian life. Uh, certainly we are to be busy about the work of the kingdom, busy fulfilling the callings to which God has called us. And at the same time, there is to be rest. We can't always be working. There has to be times when we rest. And so balance has to be found there. Uh, in the Christian life, we pray about things, we pray for things, and yet we also are responsible if we are able to put feet on our prayers, as they say, uh, to do what we can do, all the while praying that God would help us. Those of you who just finished your school year, uh, perhaps you had tests coming up and prayed that the Lord would help you to do well on your tests. I hope you also studied to do well on your tests. Uh, because God can honor that effort and work that you put into it. To fail to study and presume to pray for a good grade is just that. It's presumption. Uh, and so it is in the Christian life. Are we to pray about things or to do them ourselves? Well, both. And so you can see from these examples that balance plays a critical part in living the Christian life. Well, when we come to this passage this morning, we are coming to uh, equal time, so to speak, to what we looked at last week. You'll recall that last week, verses 1 through 5, we saw that the Scriptures warn us against being hypercritical, judgmental people toward, toward others. And then the illustration Jesus uses of the log and the speck teaches us Not that we are to ignore the sins or problems in the life of a brother or sister in Christ, but that we are to deal with them only after we have dealt with the problems and the sins in our own life. Again, not that we've reached perfection before we can help someone else or confront someone else, speak to someone else, but that we are dealing with the sins in our lives. We are working on ourselves first, and as we saw Those who truly are poor in spirit, as Jesus began the Beatitudes, are generally inclined to see their own sins as much bigger and more grievous than the sins they see in others. Hence, we see a log in our own eye and a speck in the eyes of others. Our own sins loom so large that the sins of others don't seem that significant. It's just the opposite with a self-righteous person. Sees very little wrong with himself, very little wrong in his own life, and sees all kind of problems in yours. The poor in spirit see great sins in their own heart, in their own lives, and may also notice the sins in the lives of others. And by God's grace, dealing with their own sins, are in a position to be able then to help others deal with theirs. And Jesus is very strong on this point. Verse 5, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then that brings us to verse 6. Following immediately on the heels of a passage in which Jesus warns us not to be overly critical and judgmental of others, a 
passage that strikes a very different tone. Jesus says in verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, the basic scenario here seems to be a man who has a bag full of valuable things, specifically pearls, uh, more generally things that are holy, things that are special, things that are valuable. And pigs and dogs are at his feet or around him, and he throws out some of these pearls, some of these things of value that he has in his bag. And they immediately pounce on those things and snuffle them and look at them and lick them and sniff them. And then they realize that's not anything that they value. That's not anything that they want. And enraged, they then turn and attack the one who threw these things of value down before them. That's basically the parable that Jesus tells here in one short verse. And what we want to do this morning is to is to look at that and unpack it and see what it is that Jesus is saying here. Uh, because it's something of a strange verse. The, the tone of it is somewhat shocking as we begin to perceive what Jesus is saying here. So let's let's look at the elements of this verse together. First thing that we find here is Jesus is teaching us of the utmost value of the gospel. The utmost value, the worth, the treasure that is the gospel. Uh, in the verse, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. The question is, what is it that's holy? What are the pearls of which Jesus speaks? Well, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we would have to assume that what Jesus is speaking here is about here is those things that have to do with his kingdom. Those things that have to do with the good news of Christ. Those things that have to do with Jesus or with God himself. In fact, in chapter 6, the whole chapter is taken up with our devotion to the Lord. Chapter 5, the chapter is taken up with the whole question of what is true righteousness? What is biblical godliness and righteousness? And ultimately, those things are found in Christ alone. But being in Christ, as we've repented of our sins and believed in him, we are changed and our lives look different from the world. Well, what do they look like? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is laying out the pattern, the template for us. The righteousness that is not just a, a coat that we put on, but something that grows out of our transformed heart, chapter 5. Something that expresses itself to God, not with the motivation of, of having the approval of other people but with the approval of God alone. That's why we can pray in secret without an audience, because we're seeking an audience of one. We're concerned with God, and so we're not concerned that other people see us praying, or other people know what we give, or other people are concerned to know that we're fasting, or whatever it might be. We're, we're, we're seeking God, not the approval of others. And so in the context of that, as we move into chapter 7, I would say that the things that are holy, the pearls that Jesus speaks of, have to do with things of the kingdom, things of Christ himself. In other words, the gospel. Now, there's another passage you may think of when you hear the word pearls that comes to mind, and it's found a few chapters over in Matthew 13 that helps to um, confirm that interpretation uh, from the context of the Sermon on the Mount. You may be familiar with Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom. 
so-called because Jesus goes through and says the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. And in Matthew 13, verse 45, Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And here the kingdom uh, is represented, obviously, by this one pearl. To have salvation, to be in right relationship with God, to know Christ is, is that pearl of great value. Christ himself, that is worth everything else that we could give or sell or get rid of or give up in order to gain. It says, when he found that one pearl of great value, he sold all that he had in order to gain that pearl of great value. And so when, what Jesus is saying here is that the, the gospel is something that's holy. The gospel is a pearl of immense, uncounted value. And so the first thing that Jesus is teaching us here is of the preciousness of what we have. And we do well to take that to heart. Because for many of you, especially, who have been Christians for a long time, maybe all of your lives, the things of Christ, the truths of the kingdom, the words of the gospel, can, dare I say it, become somewhat old hat, something our ears are used to hearing, something that we've become comfortable with, something maybe even we've become so familiar with that there might even be some contempt? Hopefully not. But we dare not forget the immense value of what you and I have in having the Scriptures, in hearing the Gospel, in being able to speak of these things together, and being with other people who love these things. These are tremendous treasures that we have. And Christ Himself, that we can pray, that we can speak to Him, that we can go to the Father through Him, are things worth living for. They are things worth dying for. They are things worth giving up everything else in this world in order to gain. And don't ever forget that. So the value of the gospel is something Jesus is speaking about here. The second thing that he's speaking about here is the sinfulness of people. The sinfulness of people. And here's where Jesus' words are jarring. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. So that has never had quite the same ring as the King James Version. Cast your pearls before swine. There's just something about the word swine that just really says what it is. You know, these muddy, dirty pigs rolling in the pigsty. Well, one thing we do know. Jesus is not talking here about literal dogs and pigs. Jesus isn't saying, you know, don't share the gospel with Fido. Don't. You know, don't go down to the barnyard and tell the pigs about He's not talking about literal animals here, is he? And that's why these words seem so jarring, especially coming on the heels of what we just talked about, about not judging in verses 1 through 5. Well, what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's talking about the sinfulness, the rank sinfulness of people, of us, but a, a particular manifestation of the sinfulness of the human heart. Because sin renders, the, renders us unresponsive to the gospel. We know that. The Bible tells us that. It, it's very clear in Ephesians 2 where, where 
Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Uh, you, were, you were DOA, dead on arrival. You hear the gospel and it's like talking to a corpse. You cannot respond to it. Or in another place, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says the natural man is, uh, cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot understand them. They are foolishness to him. Do we really recognize that? That all of us, you and I, apart from the grace of God, could hear the gospel all day long and not respond to it. At best, we would respond with indifference and maybe a latent hostility. But for some people, for some reason, that hostility is much more vehement, much more obvious, much more expressed outwardly. And it seems to be particularly those kinds of people that Jesus is talking about here. Because sin renders us unresponsive to the gospel, but it also renders us hostile to the gospel. Uh, Paul is quite clear about this in Romans 8. Romans, Paul has the right balance because he talks much about the grace of God, the salvation that we have in Christ. But he talks a lot first about what? Sin. Our condition, the bad news, before he presents the good news. And there's, there's balance in evangelism for you. But in Romans 8, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, To set the mind on the flesh is death. And he's talking about the unregenerate, unredeemed mind set on the flesh, not just as the body, but on sin. The flesh is a term Paul uses to refer to our fallen nature. In fact, the NIV sometimes translates it our sinful nature, where Paul uses the word literally flesh. The mind set on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we're unresponsive to the gospel, but worse than that, we're hostile. And for some reason, in God's providence, some people are overtly, even vehemently hostile toward the gospel, toward the things of Christ. Now, we're going to come back to that and talk about our response to that. But first, let's look at these terms that Jesus uses of of dogs and pigs. Those terms were in use in Jesus' day. Uh, In fact, Jews typically referred to Gentiles as dogs. And by that, they weren't referring to a cute manicured poodle. Uh, They weren't referring to a nice cuddly puppy. Uh, But they used the term uh, to describe these half-wild dogs that would roam junkyards, that would sometimes uh, gather in packs and become quite dangerous that were anything but pleasant, anything but a compliment. Uh, to call someone a dog was, was an insult. It was to look down on them with condescension. The term pigs, uh, of course, was used and known, uh, but for the Jews, pigs did not bring up nice thoughts of savory bacon sizzling and pork cooking and uh, barbecue because the pigs were unclean. They were forbidden. And pigs were, were not something to be thought of as a delicacy, but thought of with abhorrence. Uh, that's one reason that the prodigal son, who winds up at the end of his rope feeding the pigs, was in such a, such a dismal condition. Here he had become servant of these unclean animals. And so for Jesus to use these terms was very strong. 
and yet he does use them indeed. Now, we find them used in other places in Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Look out for those dogs, those unrighteous, those mutilators of the flesh, the Judaizers who came imposing Jewish regulations on believers, saying you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to live like a Jew. And Paul says, no, that's to pervert, to distort the gospel. But he refers to them, those who came with this false teaching, as dogs, as unrighteous as mere mutilators of the flesh. We find this same term used in Revelation chapter 22, verse 15. Right toward the very end of the Bible. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. In other words, everyone who is not in Christ, everyone who is outside the church, and not necessarily the visible church, but the true church, who have repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's one other reference I'll give you on this, and it's Second Peter chapter 2. It's not just Jesus who uses these terms. We find them in other places. Peter says, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. And it's curious because he refers both to the dog and the pig there in that reference. So from Jesus, from Paul, from John, from Peter... Certain people are designated as dogs, or the term pig is applied to them. Now, what is Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying here is that there are some people who, in their commitment to their sin, in their hostility to Christ and the things of Christ, because they are not born again spiritually, but are mere physical creatures, dead spiritually, they really are acting a lot like savage dogs. They really are acting a lot like unclean pigs. And that, my friends, is a judgment call. Now, you'll notice that Jesus, in other places in Scripture, uses terms to refer to other people, even terms of derision, refers to Herod as that fox, because of his trickiness, his slyness. He refers to the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites. In fact, he refers to disciples who are self-righteous in verse 5 just before this as you hypocrite. He refers in verse 14 to, or verse 15 to false prophets. And so when Jesus says in verse 1, do not judge, he again, as we saw last week, is not saying you do not make evaluations about people. You do not use discernment. It's not that you don't use discernment in in figuring out where people are in your interactions with them. But there are some people who are so hostile to the things of Christ that he uses these terms, the terms dog, the terms pig, the term pig to refer to them. And so what Jesus is saying here is not only the intrinsic value, the inestimable worth of the gospel, but the sinfulness of people, and particularly the extreme hostility toward their own creator, toward the Savior whom the Father sent, that Jesus himself can refer to them as dogs. 
and his pigs. It's a very sobering statement. Because in our day, especially where we tend to want to be so tolerant of everyone and everything, we see that Jesus was what we would call today less than tolerant in his assessment of some people. And yet Jesus' assessment was dead on. It was accurate. It was right. There's nothing unrighteous. There is nothing unholy in what Jesus says. Well, then that brings us to the third thing that we need to consider about this passage. One, the value of the gospel. Two, the sinfulness of people. And then three, the need that we have for discernment in dealing with people, particularly the kinds of people Jesus is talking about here. Now, we need to be careful what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying we don't share the gospel with unbelievers. The rest of the Bible counteracts that. The Great Commission would be in conflict with that. Jesus is not saying every unbeliever out there is a dog. There's a pig. And we shouldn't share the good news of Jesus with them. Quite the contrary. Because people are in their sins, they need to hear the good news of a Savior who came and lived and died and was raised for them. And we have the Great Commission, obviously. Now, people need the gospel. Sinners, sinners whose lifestyles might repulse you, need Jesus and could quite possibly, in his grace, be transformed and changed by Jesus. So Jesus isn't saying we don't share the gospel with unbelievers. He's also not saying here that we give up on someone at the first indication of resistance. If someone seems skeptical or hostile or distant, suddenly cold toward you, oh, well, it must be a dog, pig, (laughs) write them off, give up on them, move on. No, Jesus isn't saying that at all because people are at different places. God is at work in different people and people you interact with may be at different stages. Some may be very far. Some may be very familiar with the things of Christ and very knowledgeable of the scriptures. You have a lot more to work with there than someone who really has no knowledge of Christianity at all with a lot of teaching, a lot of instruction needs to take place. Although even those God could save immediately if he so chose. But it seems often the pattern is if someone's not very knowledgeable, that they need to learn. They need to have time to think and process. And they might be resistant. They might be even skeptical. They might even be difficult toward you. Is Jesus saying give up on them? No. What about the, such were some of you, as Paul would say to the Corinthians? Verse, uh, or number three, a third consideration. Jesus is not saying here that we don't give up on someone after prolonged effort. It may take a long time. There may be many interactions. There may be times where there's no interaction. And you just think, this is discouraging. They don't seem to be getting anywhere. They don't seem interested. They seem to have questions about everything. Maybe I should just give up. Well, if they're still willing to talk about it, should you give up? Even if they're struggling with it, if they're willing to interact with you, and, 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 and talk to you, do you give up? Even if it's been a year, two years, five years, maybe you've been praying for someone for ten years and talking to them. Do you say, well, maybe they're just a dog, maybe they're just a pig, and it's time to move on. Well, what is Jesus saying here? Well, what Jesus is doing is putting the, the holiness of the gospel and its value and the sinfulness of people together and saying what you do not want to do is expose the things of God to contempt, to blasphemy, to ridicule. There's a big difference 
in someone who's willing to talk to you and have a reasonable discussion, even if they don't believe the gospel, even if they, they have all kinds of questions and objections and difficulties with the scriptures, there's a big difference in that and someone who looks at every opportunity as a chance to ridicule you, to blaspheme Christ, and to trample underfoot the precious truths of the gospel. And Jesus says that is what we are not to do. We are not simply to enter into a situation where we know that more heat than light will be generated. Remember earlier, passage we read uh, in, in Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 9. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. In verse 7, before this, he says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. He who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. That's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about. And we see this in the scriptures. Uh, just a, a few pages over, Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, If anyone will not receive you, he's sending out his disciples. He says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. And we assume there that not receiving, not listening, is a vehement rejection of them and a rejection of their message. Matthew chapter 15, verse 14. In verse 13, Jesus said, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Leave them alone passage we read earlier, Paul in Corinth, is, is the Jews reject him, vehemently oppose him, and oppose his message, and Paul says, fine, your blood be on your own head. We're going to the Gentiles. Now, the passage I had earlier, Acts chapter 13, is, is a similar passage, uh, where the same thing happens. There is a, a vehement, hostile, angry rejection of the gospel, hostility toward them, and Paul says the same thing. He says, because you will not listen, we will turn to the Gentiles. And they will listen. And so you see that practiced in Paul's ministry. In fact, the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, uh, ends with that consideration of the Jew, by large, Jewish rejection of the gospel and the mission to the Gentiles. Titus, one other reference here, Titus chapter uh, 3. Paul's instructions, where he says in verse 10, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Have nothing more to do with him. Warn him, yes. Warn him again, but if he persists, have nothing to do with him, because he is self-condemned. Now, this is not clear-cut. It's hard to know when to give up, shall we say, on a hard case. But it seems that the line comes when the person is abusive toward Christ. They're not willing to talk about the matter at hand. When they are abusive toward you or toward the church. Honest objections, yes. Skepticism, yes. Address it. Deal with it as best you can. Trusting that the Lord will use you and use your words to work in their heart. But if they are simply going to trample the things of Christ underfoot, and if they're just going to attack you, save your breath. Maybe the Lord has other more fruitful uh, opportunities for you. 
But this takes wisdom. How do you know? Well, it takes much prayer. It takes wisdom. Let me give you some words from a couple of uh, writers I've been reading on uh, the Sermon on the Mount as we've gone through this. One, noting Jesus' example, said he can dismiss a group, as we've seen him do. Uh, He can write off Herod, Fox. He can promise judgment to whole cities. But he can be patient with a group. Uh, Offer indisputable evidence to a doubting Thomas. And weep over an unbelieving city. Christians dare not decide which side of Jesus' reactions they will follow most closely. They must follow both. Someone also noted that the proportion here is one verse to five. Five verses in favor of being non-judgmental toward them. One verse uh, toward the dog and the pig. Uh, John Stott writes this. He says, we cheapen God's grace. By letting them trample it underfoot, can anything be more depraved than to mistake God's precious pearl for a thing of no worth and actually to tread it into the mud? At the same time, to give, up, to give people up is a very serious step to take. Our normal Christian duty is to be patient and persevere with others as God has patiently persevered with us. And so it does take much wisdom. Proverbs 29.9 tells us, If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. Jesus doesn't call us to that. He doesn't call us to merely provoke rage and laughter. He calls us to share the gospel with those who are willing to listen. They may have their objections and questions, and we address those. But basically, at least the interest in, in carrying on a discussion on a civil level But as the proverb says, when the fool only rages and laughs, it's time to leave the dog pound, it's time to leave the pigsty, and move on. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering passage, and it does call for wisdom, because Lord, we would not give up on those on whom you have not given up. But Lord, we also don't want to subject the preciousness of the gospel, the precious truths of Christ, to those who would merely scorn them and laugh at them. Father, we pray for wisdom in our interactions with others. We pray that we would have great discernment as we uh, talk to people, interact, uh, wherever it might be. Father, help us to be faithful witnesses. Help us not to give up easily, but also help us, Father, not to subject your truths to unnecessary derision. For We pray in Jesus' name.